I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Smart Sex, confident conversation about sexuality for women. We're at a smart sex salon with special guest Peggy Ornstein. Peggy's written widely about parenting, and her best-selling books include Waiting for Daisy and Cinderella Ate My Daughter. But it's her newest book, Girls and Sex, that will keep parents up at night. And I think you'll hear why as we start the conversation. The title gives some people indigestion, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, actually, one person said, looked at the title and the, co- the color of the cover and said, so did you just think you wouldn't have any male readers? Is that what, <laughs> With the pink? With the pink, yeah. And I just right. said, that's why God made Kindle. Right. There, you can read it in secret if you have to. Uh, weren't you at an event in Alabama where they didn't bring in the, where was it, where they didn't bring in the books and you were kind of convinced that it might have been the title? Yes. <laughs> yeah. It was in Alabama, it was in Tuscaloosa. Yeah, they, they lost the books. Ah, and you think there might have been something to that? Like, I'm just saying. Yeah. Hard to lose a lot of boxes of books. What makes people uncomfortable about the title, do you think? And the content, of course, but... Well, I mean, it's part of the issue that, of why I needed to write the book, was that, on one hand, in this country, we live in this hyper-sexualized culture where girls and boys and all of us are bombarded with these messages on sex all the time through the popular culture, you know, everywhere around us, and yet we don't have any honest, frank discussion with young people about... The amusement park just went away. (laughs) You were saying... Nobody's screaming anymore. Um, About what it means to engage in a way that's ethical, responsible, reciprocal, mutual, that respects limits, that is communicative. We have such a deep fear of that simultaneous to allowing our kids to be bombarded with unhealthy messages about what sexuality is. It doesn't really make any sense. So I think most of the parents here would say, that's exactly what I want my daughter and son to understand about sexuality. Decisiveness, um, feeling like they can take charge of their own sexuality, Mm -hmm. whatever ethical, right. Mm -hmm. So what is it that stops parents from having those kinds of conversations if everybody pretty much agrees that that's what we want for our kids? you know, I don't think we grew up with those conversations. Yeah, Yeah, our grandparents. And I think that, you know, when we stopped saying don't to young people, we didn't really replace it with anything. And, you know, with with a good ethical framework. And this is kind of skipping to the end a little bit, but... um, one of the things I did was look at the example of other countries. And I particularly looked at the Dutch. Because there was a study that looked at uh, 400 randomly selected young women from two demographically similar colleges, one in Holland and one in the US, that were talking about their early sexual experience. And the Dutch had it all over us. They had, you know, fewer pregnancies, less disease, were less likely to be drunk, they were more likely to be able to talk to their partner who they knew very well, Um, they were more likely to enjoy themselves, to prepare responsibly, they had better body images, they enjoyed themselves more. I mean, really, it made you want to go out and buy a pair of wooden shoes. It was like, (laughs) it was so significant. And and when they talked one-on-one with the girls, what they said was that their parents, teachers, and doctors had talked to them early and often about sex 
pleasure right. and the importance of mutual trust and caring in your relationships. And what was really interesting to me was that the parents, American parents were not necessarily less uh, willing to talk to their kids about sex. But when we talk to our kids, we frame those discussions entirely in terms of risk and danger. And the Dutch talk about balancing responsibility with joy. And for me as a parent, when I heard that, that hit me between the eyes because I know, if I had not looked into that research, that I would have talked to my own daughter about contraception, about disease protection, about consent, because I'm very modern, and then I would have thought, job well done. Mm -hmm. And now I know that that is not, that's only half the conversation. I, I think you should say something about why a parent talking to a son or daughter about pleasure is meaningful. I mean, wh why is that part of the necessary communication? Well, there's a way that we, for, you know, for girls, there's a way that we have set them up for inequality in their sexual relationships. We give them so little information about their bodies, and just, just on a very basic level, I call it the American psychological clitoridectomy, that <laughs> when, when we have our infants, with baby boys, we tend to name all their parts. You know, we'll at least say, here's your pee-pee, we'll say something, right? With girls, we go right from navel to knees, and we leave this whole situation, like, unnamed. <laughs> and then they go into their puberty education classes, and they learn that uh, boys have um, erections and ejaculations, and girls have periods and unwanted pregnancy. Not the same. And then, you know, they see that you know that thing that looks kind of like a George O'Keefe painting? In the, the gray thing? The steer's head? And then it, <laughs> it, it grays out between the legs. So we never say vulva. We certainly never say clitoris. No surprise, fewer than half of girls 14 to 17 have ever masturbated. And then they go into their partnered encounters. And we think that somehow they're going to believe that sex is about them, that they're going to have a voice, that they're going to be, be able to articulate their needs, their wants, their desires, their limits, or even know what those might be. It's just not realistic. And when I would talk to the girls, can I go on about this for a minute? Yeah. You know, I would see this play out in a lot of different ways. You know, for instance, um, where oral sex was concerned. Um, one thing that's really important to know is that young people today are not having more sex, if we define sex as intercourse, they're not having more, they're not having at a younger age. Um, but that's too narrow a definition because they are engaging in other acts. And when we don't name that and acknowledge those acts as sex, they become not sex. And then they're not subject to the same rules. And where oral sex was concerned, girls, you know, the, the biggest change in American sexual behavior in the 20th century was that um, oral sex became less intimate than intercourse. And girls would tell me all the time, it's no big deal. Like, they had all read the same instruction manual. But only if it went female to male. And, I, and they had lots of reasons for saying they'd participate in that. It, was, it would improve a relationship. It was a way to boost social status. Um, it was a way to go further without catching feelings. Like, feelings are a disease. Like, you catch chlamydia, you catch feelings. You don't want that to happen. Um, but I heard so many stories about that that after a while I started to say to girls, what if every time you were alone with a guy, he asked you to get him a glass of water from the kitchen, and he never got you a glass of water? Or if he did, it was like, <sighs> you want me? Or, or he just got you a sip, you know? 
you would, you would never... I know, that always takes a second to, to sink in, right? <laughs> you would never stand for that. These were bright, you know, ambitious, assertive girls that I talked to. Um, so, you know, it was, and they laughed too, but they, then they would say, well, I never thought about it that way. But it was this inequity that I kept looking at and, um, and what that meant in young women's lives and relationships. One of the things I thought was interesting is that Peggy had no problem finding girls to talk to her about this. And in fact, I think you said no adult had ever before inquired about their experience of sexuality. Think about that. A lot that of these girls are in college. Mm -hmm. No adult has ever asked them about their experience of sexuality. Yeah, it was really profound. It was a really moving experience to talk to the girls and, and, and really changed me. Um, and I know I stay in touch with a lot. There were 70 girls that I talked to. Um, I, I looked at all the research on, on teen sexuality, and that was kind of a framework. And then I talked to 70 young women in depth between the ages of 15 to 20. And their experience um, was, was very transformative for me and I think the interviews were actually really transformative for them they would say I mean they stay in touch a lot of them um, some of them changed their majors as a result of really? it or a lot of them said it changed the way they approached sex I and mean, it was really an interest and it was because yeah nobody had ever asked them those questions nobody had ever had those conversations with them before so for those of you with preteens how many of you are kind of dreading th these discussions that you'll be having yeah Right over here. Excellent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They just volunteered. Right. Yeah. Tell me what you're dreading about it. I am dreading feeling like I don't even know a lot of it myself that some of these kids are aware of and that I didn't nor have experienced and how I can talk to her about it without feeling dumb or just awkward, embarrassed. What do you think you don't know that she knows? Yeah, good question. You have good. Two I do have two children, yes. Yes, that's true. So I don't know, I just need to be real. I just need to lay it out on the line. Peggy, what do you, what do you hear in that? Well, I really think that parenting from fear and ignorance is a viable option. Um, <laughs> that is not the answer for it, I thought you were going to give. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I mean, well, how do you think you're going to prepare? I mean, you have to, I think you have to be ahead of your child on this. And there's a lot of really great resources. I mean, and I can, I can give some of them to carry sure. to, to put up that. Yeah. But, but that's okay. I mean, there's never, there's always, I think that what you want to do, we tend to silo sex over here like it's different than all other conversations. When the fact is, is that the values we want to convey are the same that we want to convey in all parts of our child's life about compassion, about kindness, about respect, about mutuality, you know, about treating people as human beings, all of these things that we want to tell them, and, and self-respect as well. And so I think you're, you create a scaffolding with those conversations in other realms that, that you can use as a bridge to having those discussions about sex. I also advocate, and I'm really serious about this, um, Doing something like listening to one of the shows that I, like the show that I did with Carrie last year on a podcast while you're in the car with your child and they can't escape. <laughs> and, and then you can say things like, I mean, you can say things like, well, so um, uh, what, 
what's it like in your world? What do you think about what she's saying? What, you know, what's going on with your friends? And you can sort of ease into it a little bit without having to directly say to your child, you know, so do you masturbate? You know, I mean, that's just not going to apply, you know? Right. Yes, podcast easily findable on uh, yeah. any of your podcast apps. Okay, qu- uh, back there on dreading the conversation, right? Hi. So I have a 10-year-old son, and I think the converse, well, the dread for me is I want to introduce the idea of respecting women. I feel like I do all the time, but sexually, I have this conflict. I want to talk to him about sex. I want to talk to him about his own needs, but I don't, I don't know how to introduce the idea of how to respect the female gender and what their needs are as well without bringing me into the equation. Because <laughs> he doesn't want to hear about me, trust me. <laughs> well, you know, again, I think there's some really great resources for that, like the book um, Talk to Me First by Deborah Rothman is a fantastic resource. For a child that age, there's a book called From Diapers to Dating. Um, that's where, does, is anybody here Unitarian? I know I'm in Minnesota, but are there Unitarians here? It's the land There's of the Lutherans. Okay, Unitarian. Yeah, so the best sex education in America is through the Unitarian Universalist Church. It's the Our Whole Lives Owl Curriculum, which is actually available for a nominal fee online. Um, and it is a little bit of Holland in America. And people who have been through that pro- program, they get all of this. And it's so stupendous. But particularly for boys, I'm writing a book on boys now. I'm, I'm, that's, that's my next project. And I'm interviewing them a lot. And one piece with young men that's really important to disrupt as you think about this is porn. Because that has been a, the, inter, the internet has been a game changer for kids. And if you have not gone on Pornhub or something of the equivalent, then whatever you have in your head, whatever you're thinking right now is wrong. And you need to go and look at Pornhub.com or something. I hate to like, promote them, but you know, whatever. But, or something like that. You know, to see what kids can get for free at the click of a mouse. And there was a, a survey of 10,000 college students that said um, 60% looked at porn in part as sex education. So, yeah, that's the correct response is, ugh. Um, because if they're not getting it at home, if they're not getting it at school, where are you going to go, right? I mean, it's right there. You'd do it too. I'm not, I don't want to shame anybody. I'd look at it too if I were that age. Um, and so that's another media where, or another realm in which women's bodies are distorted and men's bodies, where women's sexuality is a performance for male pleasure, where the humiliation of women is routinely eroticized. Um, and the average age that kids first see porn is 11. So your son is 10. So you've got a year to have that, no, seriously, to have a conversation with him, to explain to him, you know, that this is about as realistic as pro wrestling or, you know, or whatever. Um, and I think it's really, and it's not just porn. I mean, I, I had, again, in the car where she couldn't get away, I had a conversation about porn with my daughter a couple years ago. And then we went home that night and we watched the movie Brooklyn, which is really good movie, right? If you haven't seen it, wonderful movie. But it has the kind of sex scene in it that an adolescent will see, I haven't counted, but approximately 795,342 times. Mm. And it's when they go, kiss, 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 <clears throat> rip off the clothes, they have apparently intercourse for three seconds, and everybody's happy. And I thought, oh my gosh, that is no more realistic than porn, really. 
And what script is that telling my child? So I said, you know, honey, how when you take a cab, they show a cab ride in a movie, they show the person get into the cab, and then they show the person get out of the cab. They don't show the whole cab ride. Similarly, when you see sex in a movie, they show these things that symbolize sex, but actually have nothing to do with what sex is. And P.S., they're from a very particular point of view that doesn't prioritize what women would probably be liking at the time. And that's really important to understand, because kids, they call the media the super peer. It dictates scripts to young people, whether it's regular media, whether it's porn, whether it's video games, of how they're supposed to interact. So if you're not stopping and questioning not only the scripts about sex, but the scripts about love, which are often quite distorted, um, then that's what they're absorbing and that's what they're going to take with them. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to Smart Sex. My guest at this Smart Sex salon is best-selling author Peggy Ornstein. And her newest book has stirred up a lot of unease among parents. It's titled Girls and Sex, Navigating the Complicated New Landscape. And that's exactly what we're doing at this salon with an audience full of parents and some teens. I feel like I'm comfortable talking about it, about sex with my kids. But as soon as you bring up the conversation, they know how to shut you down very quickly by just acting so mortified that they don't want to talk about it anymore. And you've already addressed that, that getting trapped in a car is a good idea. Yeah. But that's, I, so I'm sort of wondering, like, I, I wish there was something in our society, like maybe the Unitarians, where there's other adults. Because, like, when you had this conversation with the girls, they were happy to talk to you. But if, if you had been their mother, they probably would have been like, oh, mom, that's so embarrassing, we can't talk about that. And I wish there was just that, that opportunity in our culture. I agree, and I do think another option for people, and a really good option is if you have that aunt, that uncle, that neighbor, that person who is really close with your family, close with your child, that you can enlist to have some of those conversations. It's just another loving adult that can support your child in their life. And that's, um, that's terrific. Is there anybody here who's actually had a conversation with one of your kids about pleasure? You, you, you steeled yourself, you... How did that go? Yeah, but she's two. I mean, <laughs> but that's the point. <laughs> okay, no, right? That's, yes. not, that's not irrelevant, Carrie, because when, you know, as we know, preschoolers are constantly touching themselves, right? And one yeah. of the things that you say to a preschooler is, it feels really good when you touch your vulva, it feels really good when you touch yeah. your penis, but we don't do it at Grandma's Thanksgiving table. Absolutely. She said, what is that? And I said, that's your clitoris. And she said, can I touch it? And I said, yeah, you know, that's yours. It's going to bring you a lot of joy, and we're going to talk about it later. But that right now, that's a private activity. So I'm here, I'm safe, go for it. And then we put her diaper on when she was done. But You're good. You are really good. You know, I just, I recent, somebody recently sent me, you know how you all, I don't know if you all have daughters, but they get that book, Karen Keeping of You, the American Girl book. Karen Keeping of You, American Girl 2 has, has a diagram of the external genitalia that labels everything except the clitoris. And I showed it to my daughter and I said, what's wrong with this picture? And she's 13 now. She looked down and went, no clitoris. <laughs> Right. right. <laughs> Drawing it in, labeling it, you know, but that's how averse we are. That's why I say the American psychological clitoridectomy, we are so averse. We are so afraid 
that if we tell girls in particular, I mean, this is, pleasure is not really an issue with boys, but if we tell girls in particular that, this, that sex ought to feel wonderful to them, that they will then, you know, if, if we don't tell them, they won't find out, you know, somehow, and I mean, they won't do it. Peggy, that's the ambivalence, right. though, isn't it? About, yes. About being okay with right. the idea that but women truth, find sexual pleasure. The more girls know, the more control they have in their body, the more pleasure they feel in their body, the more they understand their body's responses, the more um, discerning they are in their sexual experiences because then they're not there for somebody else's pleasure. If you're there for somebody else's pleasure, it doesn't really, you know, one of the things that really fascinated me in the research was that young women are more likely, college-age women are more likely than men to define their satisfaction by their partner's pleasure. So they'll say, if my partner feels good, then I'm happy. Young men are more likely to measure their satisfaction by their own pleasure. So if I feel good, I feel good, you know? And that is a, that's a really significant, that girls learn, you know, over and over that it's, what's important is somebody else's needs, what's important is somebody else's feelings, what's important is somebody else's perception of you, and that's the, the, that's the place where you get satisfaction. We have some college students in the audience, so find the intestinal fortitude to talk to me in a, in a couple minutes, all right? I just want you to think about it, because I'm coming for you. Yes, ma'am. So I, we have a very sex-positive household, and I'm a single mother of two daughters. And from a very young age, I talked to my oldest especially about pleasure. And I really recognized my daughter in some of the stories of your book. The girls who said, um, you know, they thought it was gross down there. They felt bad for the guy. They didn't want to ask for a reciprocal oral sex experience. It was like, it was like flashing back to all of those conversations with my daughter reading the book. So. It's extra challenging, and I feel for the man who said he has no problem talking to his kids. I had zero problem talking about sex. In fact, I have an unfinished documentary about masturbation, so I'm extremely open-minded. But they didn't want to talk about it with me, and, and I found my own oldest daughter really falling into that, well, you know, it, it's really more about pleasing the guys and, and having the power over the guys. I totally recognize my child in so many stories. And, and you're right, a, a, lot of, a lot of the girls would say the reason was not so much that the guys didn't want to, it was that they didn't want it, because they felt that it was, their genitals were simultaneously icky and sacred, and they didn't want somebody down there. And so, and you know, one of the things that we know in research is that sexual satisfaction is directly linked to your feelings about your genitals. And there's this thing called, there's a whole field of study called genital self-image, Yes, there is. And the woman who is sort of the, the main person in that, whose name is Debbie Herbenick at Indiana University, says that young women's genital self-image is under siege right now. And she talks about the rise of pubic hair removal. Um, because that's one of the biggest generational differences, is that 75% of college women remove their pubic hair, some of the, you know, at least on occasion, and 50% do it regularly. And when I would talk to girls about that, they would say, um, they did it for themselves. And I would say, so if you were alone on a desert island with nothing but a razor blade, is that really how you'd spend your time, you know? And, and when I pushed further, they would talk about um, fe fear of humiliation. And they'd say, guys act like they'd be disgusted if they felt hated. And no girl wants to be talked about that like, like that. And it reminded me of the 1920s, which was when flapper fashions came in. 
and our arms and legs were first visible. And that was when women started shaving their armpits and their legs because those, our limbs were open to public scrutiny and to critique. And there's a way I think this trend too is an indication that girls' most intimate area is open to public scrutiny now, open to critique and open to becoming more about somebody, how somebody else sees it rather than how it feels to you. And I always say there's this great art installation that you can find online called Great Wall of Vagina. And this artist took plaster casts of 400 women's vulvas and then made a wall out of them. <laughs> and what's cool about it is that whole squeamishness and ickiness and, you know, is it normal and is it weird? You see that they're like fingerprints. When there's 400 of them, you know, they're like fingerprints. There is no normal. There is no way that they're supposed to be. And I think that that helps both have that conversation and also alleviate some of that anxiety around that, to see that, to see that vast array. Peggy, um, I'm over here with a college freshman? No, sophomore. Junior. I'm sorry, Dana. What are you thinking about as you listen to this? Um... Okay, so I'm trying to think. From someone who's my age, I just, I'm glad I'm growing up in this generation, uh, at least my generation, because I feel like I can take, I, I can control my own body and I can control my own actions, but this, this self-esteem uh, that I received and that I'm willing to go after sex and my mom's sitting right next to me and she knows this and I talk to her all the time about sex and I think she's appreciative of that. Um, but. This has occurred after I was in a bad relationship and then another bad relationship. And then finally I got my self-esteem and finally I got my self-confidence. And now after two years of bad relationships, I'm finally enjoying sex and I'm willing to talk about it more. So yeah, I'm glad I'm part of this generation because my friends and I, we talk about it constantly and I'm sure you guys all talked about it with your friends when you were my age. But now I can get my mom involved and so it's great. Good. That's lovely, and I think, you know, I had girls who, who, young people in surveys and such, they, they really do want to talk to their parents, and they particularly want to talk to their parents about the emotional aspects of sex and the connective aspects of sex, but they do want to talk to their parents, and I think having that discussion, having that ability to talk to your mom, you know, we guide our children in so many ways in our values and in their decision-making. In, in Holland, one of the things that really struck me about the Dutch thing was... Um, in the U.S., we think about teenagers as growing up by creating a rift with the family. So they're supposed to be one person at home and one person away from home. And that's particularly stressful for girls, to be the good girl at home and then, you know, the other girl out of the home. And in Holland, they talk about... I hope nobody here speaks Dutch. Does anybody here speak Dutch? Um, and whoever's listening, I'm sorry, but there's this word that I'm going to mangle called gezelligheid, something like that. And... It means cozy togetherness, and it's this idea that you grow up interdependently with the family as, you're, as you become a teenager and become older, and that all these questions that we pretend don't exist in our culture, like sex, alcohol, you know, all these, all these taboo topics are discussed within the family. So in one of the books I was reading about this, uh, this girl said, well, of course, the first person I told when I had intercourse for the first time was my mother, and she was sitting at the kitchen table with her best friend, and they said, did he have a good time? Did you have a good time? Did you have an orgasm? Did he have an orgasm? So I was just listening to the, reading this and going, oh, my God. But, <laughs> but they was like that open. 
Um, that's perhaps a little much for us, but you know, it, it's, it's indicative that there can be another way. We should and that really, that's healthy. But when you say that's a little much for us, why? Maybe it's not. I mean, we Maybe should, it's not. Or why well, is it a little much for us? Yes, and I think, I mean, I, I guess what I mean is from where we, we, we have a long way to move right. for that. Right. And we also have lived in an era of abstinence-only education. Um, and we are, hope, you know, I'm not sure, we may be coming out of that now, but abstinence-only education was not neutral. It was harmful. It, you know, kids who come from those programs do not delay intercourse. They have more oral sex. They have more anal sex. They have um, just as many partners, and they have higher rates of pregnancy and disease. Speaking of orgasm, question right over there. <laughs> so my, my question is, when you're speaking with these girls, do they, and we talk about pleasure, you actually get specific about orgasm, mm -hmm. because the data that I, I know is that boys have orgasm younger, 10 or so, and uh, girls, maybe not until 2021. 20, so is that data incorrect and based on no. old information? And so what's happening to girls? Mm -mm. Um, what I was seeing was, I, that, yeah, that was something that we talked about a lot and that I read about a lot. And there's, uh, what's, what's really interesting, so there's an orgasm gap that's pretty consistent. And especially, we haven't really talked about hookup culture, but especially there, because you're, if you're not having consistent um, sex with a partner who actually cares about your well-being, yeah, that's not going to be a thing. So, um, and the rates of faking have gone way up according to studies of college students for girls. Um, so there's a, there's a big orgasm gap um, for, between heterosexual uh, young men and heterosexual women. What's really interesting is that in same-sex encounters for, for girls, that disappears. And young women orgasm at the same rate as straight men. And what, when, I talked, yeah, when I talked to gay students, they would say to me that they felt free in same-sex encounters to get off the script, that was what they would say, and create an encounter that worked for them. And also, they continued to have that orientation that I talked about earlier, where young women care, are very invested in their partner, regardless of whether it's a one-off or whether it's a long-term thing. So that created more of an environment where it was pleasure-centric. And they also, and I think this is part of that, gay girls really challenged, for me, the notion of virginity as defined by first intercourse. And again, not because intercourse isn't important, not because it's, you know, our concerns about it aren't warranted, but it's not the only important thing. And I asked one of the gay girls that I spoke with how she knew she wasn't a virgin anymore. And she said, yeah, I had to Google that. And Google didn't know. Um, and so eventually she said, well, I think I wasn't an or a, a, a virgin anymore after I had my first orgasm with a partner. And I thought, wow, you know, what if that was the definition? You know, how would that change our approach to talking to young people? Not because, again, intercourse isn't important, but rather than seeing sex as a race to a goal with only one thing that counts, it's, it reconfigures sex as a pool of experience that's about warmth and affection and desire and arousal and pleasure and sensuality and communication and touch and you know I'll, I'll say to young people like really who's the more experienced partner or person the one who has made out with a partner for three hours and experimented with erotic tension and sensuality and communication or the one who gets hammered at a party and hooks up with a random to get rid of their v-card before they go to college peggy do do the girls that you were talking to, if they've never had intercourse, but they've had 
but they've had plenty of foreplay and oral sex. Do they consider themselves as having sex if it's only oral sex? No. So they, they tell themselves, I'm, I'm not actually having sex. My parents would be all right with this or whatever. Why don't they tell themselves? I don't know if they think their parents would be all right with but, it, but, but they, they do not consider themselves to be having sex. But, no. then, but what is the purpose behind kind of blocking the understanding of that? Well, we have told them that's not sex. They've learned in their, you know, if you take abstinence-only education, you learn that sex is intercourse. If you, um, I mean, Bill Clinton, frankly, didn't help with that too much, honestly. Um, there, and there's very little, there's just starting to be research on kids and oral sex because you couldn't get funding. Who's going to let you talk to their kid about their oral sex experience, you know? So it has been basically taboo. Um, so we just haven't discussed it. And we have just this sort of, vestigial idea that's left over from when the church was trying to control our reproductivity in the medieval period, that there's only one thing that counts and that's reproductive sex that would result in reproduction. Peggy Ornstein at a smart sex salon. Coming up in the next part of our conversation, what young women say about the hookup culture on college campuses and why many of them won't tell their partners what they want when it comes to sex. Smart Sex was created by Teresa McFarland and me, Carrie Miller. We're grateful to the terrific Peggy Ornstein for being our guest at a Smart Sex salon. We owe big thanks to our salon sponsors, Lakes Dermatology, Whitney Emanuel, a financial advisor offering investment advisory services through Eagle Strategies, Stephanie Chandler of Edina Realty, and Samantha Strong, eco-broker and contractor and owner of Metamorphosis. You can find all of our Smart Sex podcasts, including what really happens in a sex therapist's office, and more at smartsex.org.